Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The medium is the message. Proof is approved. What kind of proof? It's approved. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today we're talking about Schitt's Creek. I think the question that's central to our episode today is, is it a Canadian show? I think we may disagree. (laughs) I think we will. But all the more fun. We're not intending to dive very deep into plot lines, but we will necessarily spoil a little bit of the show. So if you haven't watched it, go watch it all and then report back. It's on Netflix. (laughs) Not the sixth season yet. I know. I'm desperately waiting. Me too. Liv, what is Shits Creek about? A very wealthy family who... Uh, at the very beginning, loses everything and is forced to go live in a town that they bought as a joke uh, many years ago called Shit's Creek. And they kind of are advised to live there because they can live there affordably. But of course... Uh, or it's the only asset that the state has no interest in seizing. Oh, that's right. it's been deemed worthless. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, this, the the various seasons kind of follow them along their journey of learning how to readjust to a new new lifestyle and the lessons that they learn along the way. Um, should we talk about the origin story of Schitt's Creek? How did it happen? Who created it? How? What was it inspired by? So Schitt's Creek was created by the Levy, <laughs> Levies. Specifically, it seems that Dan Levy was at the helm, but um, he was helped massively by his father, Eugene Levy, who is a huge celebrity in his own right. And uh, Levy, Dan Levy, has said that he imagined this story as he was watching reality television and kind of imagining what would happen if all of a sudden one day they lost the wealth wealth that they had and he actually specifically mentioned that he was inspired by the time that kim bassinger uh bought a small town in georgia i read that and i read in saying i was wondering what reality tv families would do if they lost all their money and he said she said specifically would the kardashians be the kardashians about all the money yeah and we should say that Dan has a unique insight into 
reality TV or he's watched it with a pretty close eye because he was the host of MTV Canada's The Hills, The After Show. No doubt a kind of wacky idea that he described initially as being fairly niche. I definitely think it's definitely for a lot of millennials who have grown up watching reality TV. And then and the characters will, well, I know Annie Murphy has said that she was watching reality TV and that's how she developed Alexis's voice. Like she mm-hmm. says, it's the laziest kind of speaking. <laughs> totally. And a lot of um, mannerisms. Oh yeah. Like the concept, like the limp wrist. Yeah. Like, she always talks about that, how she watches, watched how they <laughs> held their bags with this yeah. like, limp wrist. <laughs> and she just like kind of uses that in her everyday life. So Dan Levy certainly had some experience in film and television, but as this was his first time being a showrunner, it was obviously a huge endeavor, and he undertook it with his dad, Eugene. Um, Do we want to talk about who Eugene Levy is, how he became so successful, and the power of his name in Canada, basically? So Eugene Levy is successful because he is a Hamiltonian. (laughs) Is that the only reason, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he is from Hamilton. Um, and he went to the high school Wait, across the street from my high school, and he went right. to my alma mater at Master University. So for those of you who don't know, Katie obviously <laughs> is a proud, proud Hamiltonian. Um, but Eugene Levy is a – I've been reading so many articles about Eugene and the, sh- and the show, and every, um, like every article is like, comedy legend, comedy royalty, comedy duo, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. But, I mean – Eugene Levy is comedy, I would say comedy royalty, probably known originally for SCTV. I think became very famous. I think definitely the people our age as the dad in American Pie. But Eugene Levy is a very, very famous Canadian in his own right. And it was with um, his father's help that Dan was able to get to land Catherine O'Hara, who Uh is another famous uh, Canadian a comedian also on SCTV with Eugene has worked with him for 40 years um, also appeared in Home Alone Beetlejuice and I think she also appeared in Best in Show she did she Let was I think his husband her is they were husband and wife in that why do you think that Schitt's Creek took off the way it did I mean it has Canadian stars but but why do you think it's such an international hit I think, honestly, the the secret sauce of what makes a show successful is a marketable uh, and a recognizable person at the forefront to network outside of your own community. I don't think that this show would have really ever got made if it wasn't for Eugene Levy being attached to it, because I think it really did help um people take a chance on it and a a lot of I've heard a lot of like executives and producers say about and a lot of different shows like we need a star we need a star to anchor it and that seems to be the biggest thing to get getting a show off the ground because without a star it's really hard to get publicity and Eugene, Eugene Levy although he's obviously a really famous Canadian comedian he's very well known internationally right and so the power of eugene levy meant that they could land talk shows in the states in order to promote the show mm-hmm. in a way that they wouldn't have been able to um without him 
I also read that, I mean, it, it debuted on CBC, right, um, for the first year. And then in its second season, it was picked up in the States by Pop TV. Mm-hmm. The fact that it was on an American network. And then I think it was in 2017, it landed on Netflix and its viewership supposedly went supposedly went right up, although it's really hard to know because Netflix doesn't, doesn't really release um, their viewership members usually. I think a lot of people have credited the fact that it's, you know, binge ball Netflix makes it making it also accessible to um, to people around the world and not just those who get CBC. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is my opinion. So I, I want to caveat by saying this is my opinion: is that in Canada, often producers aren't motivated to get the absolute best content because there's a certain quota of money that's available for them and you see often that they strive for projects that they know that the ratings are going to be good they know that there's a developed audience for it they're less willing generally to take risks on projects that may seem in the beginning to be a little bit niche as this one did and that's how you know Dan Levy described it in the beginning and so it's actually really interesting to hear Dan talk about his own experience producing the show and how much he took control of how he wanted it to go forward you know because he was offered um for the show to be produced by um ABC and he actually turned it down because he said he was nervous that they were going to take too much of um a controlling yeah too much creative control and he stuck to his guns and he went obviously with pop tv which was not as well known and seemed to work with Schitt's Creek a lot more than a big TV network ever would work with one individual show. And that also seemed to catapult Schitt's Creek into a little bit of more momentum, a little bit more success. And then obviously, like you said, when it went on Netflix, there was like a huge, a huge boost, huge rise. Right. Should we kind of segue into talking about Schitt's Creek's place in Canadian TV and culture. In Ontario specifically, but also in BC, there is a pretty healthy film industry that that a huge portion of that is not 100% original Canadian content. Now, there are various tax incentives that the governments have given so you can be an american production and still get access to tax incentives and that's why people come to toronto you know for example something something that you need to do is sometimes have a canadian showrunner have a canadian screenwriter have a canadian director all those things give you a certain number of points in order to either achieve these tax incentives or not And so these kind of Canadian requirements do incentivize American productions who are shooting in Canada to employ Canadian talent, which is obviously good for Canada. So now, so the question then I think becomes is if you're hitting some of these targets or not, if you're employing a Canadian screenwriter, if you're employing a Canadian director, if you're using Canadian talent, but it's an American production telling an American story, how much does that shape the production? How much does that make the production Canadian? So 
there's a couple interesting examples because you see um, sometimes even with Canadian productions, which are totally uh, Canadian funded, it, there's nothing necessarily Canadian about them. But then you have something like Handmaid's Tale, which is based on uh, a, a novel written by a Canadian. It's shot in Toronto and although it's not necessarily a Canadian story, it's not been produced by a Canadian company, there is something quintessentially Canadian about Handmaid's Tale because it's based on a Canadian story and it's shot in Toronto and the director uh, the directors are Canadian the actors are pretty dominantly Canadian although Elizabeth Moss isn't and so that's kind of the interesting question is how much what does it really mean to be a Canadian show that's what I wanted to talk about because I I have to <laughs> I think this is where we're going to disagree I think that like I love this show that's why we're doing it um but I don't feel like the content is Canadian and I don't really think that it doesn't it, I mean I know these people I've I grew up loving Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and watching Dan Levy on MTV but and those people, I know those people are Canadians and I know their work and that feels personal to me, but there's just nothing about that story that is Canadian, I would argue. And I mean, we're talking about storytelling, like the fact that the crew is Canadian, the fact that it's shot in Canada, like tons of other things that are completely American, the fact that it's directed by Canadians. If there's no Canadianness to the story, why is it Canadian? I mean, I, I get... I think it's great that that um, Canadian artists are getting work and are benefiting from these policies. And I want more Canadian art to be loved and adored by everybody else on the planet. But it doesn't, I don't feel like Shit's Creek is Canadian. But in terms of the cultural references made in the show, like there's no mention of, there's or very little mention of Canadian places and Canadian things. And most of the references are American. Like you see that they talk about in their former lives, roses were living in New York and LA or spending time in New York and LA. Mm-hmm. Something I noticed today when I was watching clips that I haven't seen as much in the people writing about Shit's Shit's Creek Canadian, whatever, is like when uh, Alexis talks about, she, she says, I didn't go missing, David. The FBI knew who, where I was the entire time, right? Like it's, it's the FBI. It's like the references are when they're there are American, Mm-hmm. I think later on they stop making those American references and kind of try to make them placeless, which I almost think is worse. <laughs> like, like um, I've seen this called like the Canada doesn't exist. Canada doesn't exist trope where shows that are Canadian in order to appeal to American audiences, just don't make reference to Canadian or American things. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead just kind of try and leave that open so that everyone can, can think it's about them. Mm-hmm. But I think that the silence is kind of deafening. Like, I think that I noticed that it's not about Canadian stuff. I mean, I think that uh, the creators have tried to compensate for this. I mean, Dan Levy has said that they were, like, consciously not saying where it was supposed to be set. And then in 2018, Dan Levy had said that it, it's supposed to be set in Canada. Um, but it's almost, I don't even know if I like that either because if the roses are like 
an American family living in New York who come to this rural town in Canada. Like that seems, that seems like the same Canadian, like Canadian television rural stereotypes we've seen in all the shows. And what we like about Schitt's Creek is that it's different. So in terms of whether it's Canadian, Dan Levy gave a quote to Now Magazine saying, it's been really overwhelming because I will never not see this show as a small Canadian family. We shot the show in Canada. It was a Canadian cast and crew. And I feel like the show embodies the Canadian identity and the philosophy of acceptance, love, compassion, and empathy. So for it to have become a success story on an international level has been remarkable because I really see it as a representation of Canada and all the Canadians can do. Now there's parts of that I like and parts of that I don't. I like, yeah, if the people are Canadian, if people making it are Canadian, it's, it's, it can be a source of Canadian pride. It is an example of what Canada and Canadians can do. I love that. That's great. Put it on a t-shirt. Um, but the show embodies the Canadian identity and the philosophy of acceptance, love, compassion, and empathy. I mean, if you're going to equate Canada with those things, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to sign on. I think that that's pretty sweeping. I don't think we own acceptance, love, compassion, and empathy. I don't think we get to claim those. I don't know. I don't think that's enough <laughs> to make something Canadian. I think that that's a fair I think it's a fair point, but when a show is written by someone that is Canadian, I don't think that you can take certain perspectives out of people. I think that even when we talk about, and we'll we'll get into this more, the LGBTQ storyline, I don't think that you can separate the fact that Canada was one of the first places to legalize gay marriage away from you know, Dan Levy's perspective on a couple, on on that whole storyline. And I think that maybe I'm looking for uh, comparisons and drawing things, but I think that that perspective may be, maybe it's not an accident that that whole storyline comes from someone who's Canadian. And maybe the reason why we haven't seen like really similar storylines with American content is for that reason and I'm totally being speculative here and I acknowledge that but I, I wonder if there's room for that I think that's a great point and I would love that to be true and I think that's I think it's a really interesting point but I obviously have to problematize that we are so progressive here when you know we have members of parliament losing their minds over us trying to ban conversion therapy therapy like Hmm. this week <laughs> no of it's, cor- it's, of course. It's, it's, it's tough it's tough I hear you but I don't know we have we still have lots of problems and like our uh, acceptance of LGBTQ people and issues is just not it's not where we should be satisfied with it being any but I don't know I don't I just I don't know if if like I just don't believe that acceptance, love, compassion, and empathy are quintessentially Canadian. I think we're giving ourselves too much credit. And that's a huge, <laughs> I'm going to get shit for that. And I know that's like a huge debate, but I also just think it's a cop out. It's like, oh yes, the Canadians are nice. Like, I think it's a stereotype too. I just don't think that is enough to make something Canadian. Like that content alone, that's not Canadian. It's just, oh. it's just not enough to be distinctly Canadian, I can say, I should say. That's how I feel. Right. 
but I'm not necessarily sure. I, I, I agree with you and I hear where you're coming from, but I'm just not sure for me that I need something to be distinctly Canadian in order for me to feel like it's Canadian content. Like f- for me, I really see the value in writers and directors being Canadian and showing a perspective that is in some way and very subtly perhaps uniquely Canadian. Because I think that, you know, when we take it into a context of more like film theory, a lot of people will say that it doesn't, that there's a reason why people are advocating for more women, for more diversity behind the scenes, because they enable a a perspective that is unique. And regardless of whether they're telling stories that are distinctly or distinct to them and to their background or their experience, that doesn't always matter. What matters is that they're there and their perspective is getting shown, you know? Do you think, is there anything else that maybe that's not so overt as overt as like, seems like I want it to be is there anything else that that kind of is a good example of that Canadian lens that you're talking about because I think that maybe there could be and I just can't think of what it is this is I think the struggle of the Canadian perpetually is to define what's the difference between Canadians and Americans and how we set ourselves apart like I think it's it's such a struggle as a Canadian because it's like you say you know like we're not trying to take we're not just trying to say that we're better than the states because we're more accepting or this because we have our own set of issues i think you've made a good point of having a revolution now that by wanting something to be distinctly canadian i'm what i'm really asking for is something that is clearly discernible from the american like in terms of me wanting something that's distinctly canadian what i mean is that i want something that i can separate as not american and then by definition positioning myself in relation to the states as so many of us tend to do and are so much of our culture tends to do and I'm stuck in that really classic Canadian trap of just looking looking down at the Americans and, and imagining myself relation to them yeah and I think that if if I was to give an example of a show that I think does that well you know to just <laughs> I know that you've had this revelation, but to just backtrack for a second and mm-hmm. give an example of actually two shows that I think are very distinctly Canadian for, I'll tell you why, are, and, and I'll be interested if you've watched either of these to hear your opinion of this, uh, Kim's Convenience mm-hmm. and Wor- Working Moms. I think I've watched a couple episodes. I know Working Moms is Canadian. Is it distinctly Canadian? Like. Yes, are there references t- to Canadian things? Okay. I'll tell you why. So both of these shows are produced by CBC. Both are shot in uh, in and around Toronto and both make reference distinctly to the fact that they're in Toronto. It's very obvious. And especially with Kim's Convenience, which my parents are obsessed with, it's quite fun because you can actually sp- spot the different places. And there's a store on, I think it's Queen Street East that looks like it's the Kim's Convenience store. So you can kind of like sightsee and... Cool. Um, their daughter goes to OCAD, like, you, you know, there's just a lot of mm-hmm. things. I remember that, yeah. And in Working Moms, the same thing, it's like in Toronto, there's references to Toronto places, but also 
what's interesting, and I and I read this, I can't say that it was like my own observation, was that they're on maternity leave. And maternity leave in Canada is a year. Depends where you work, I think. It, but yeah, depends, but you know, it can be It depends on your union and stuff. And right. it also depends on your personal circumstances, as always. Right. Uh, but there's an opportunity to take leave up to 18 months. Most people take it, well, not most people, but you can, the normal is more like 12 months. And there was, and obviously Working Moms is now on Netflix, and so there was Americans who were watching Working Moms, and they commented on Twitter saying, what the heck? Like, their mat leaves that long, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, it's funny, and it's like subtle things like that that we sometimes take for granted in Canada that we have this um, opportunity for mat leave that when other people watch it they they recognize that it's just the story or different elements of the story are distinct from their themselves and their own situation in a way that I think that us as Canadians are going to struggle to recognize because we know it to be true you know yeah no so I'm I'm interested so you've watched Kim's Convenience, you know, what's the difference between your feeling about whether Kim's Convenience is uniquely Canadian and Schitt's Creek being uniquely Canadian? I'm just interested. I mean, I suppose that references and places don't a show setting make, but yeah, like the, like you said, the daughter goes to OCAD, like there's, it's, it's also very, as much as it's a Canadian show, I feel like non-Torontonians would say it's such a Toronto show. Yeah, it's clearly just a, such a Toronto show because of the way that they refer to places and things. But I just think that I think that in Chits Creek that the fact that there's almost no reference to anywhere except American places or like Alexis's international kidnappings, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, like it's it's weird when you think that there's nothing there, you know? Yeah, and it's also like interesting that it's like a f- like it feels also like a little bit of a Canadian story because it's this immigrant family mm-hmm. who's making a life in Canada, which I think, especially in Toronto, really resonates, you know? Yeah. And this is the other thing I really want to say. And I think that this is probably the most important point that I'm going to make <laughs> is that I think that we as Canadians have a, f- a certain feeling about Canadian content that we don't really think it's that good at all and i and i'm so guilty of this that we don't we don't like necessarily has literally casted canadian shows <laughs> yeah but I'm, I'm so guilty of it and i'll hold my hand up to say like that i like i don't seek out canadian content i don't strive to watch canadian content and to be honest i didn't really appreciate schitt's creek until it became an international success me neither. Netflix. Not until it was on Netflix. Until yeah. and once I heard Americans talking about it, then you were like, "I got to get involved." I was like, "Okay, it's it's time." Yeah, and it, and it's largely because of streaming platforms like Netflix that Canadian shows can get propelled out in a way that they couldn't before. So, but I think it is largely because we're seeing that it's they're successful internationally. Like we're we're only saying that shows are good when they have that international success. We're not like looking at our own content and going like this is this is actually good, you know? Yeah. We're not the ones picking what's successful. The internationals community is the ones who are picking what's successful. I just think that we as Canadians should look at our own content 
and decide what's successful and give it a chance. A part and away from international success. Yeah. Well, I think Dan Levy disagrees with you because he says. <laughs> Tell me what Dan Levy says. If Schitt's Creek can, in some way, open the door a little wider for more Canadian television to be seen on the world stage, then that's a wonderful thing, even from just a financial standpoint, because it means a greater investment, which means more opportunity, more ways to build the industry, to support our own, and continue to take risks. No, and I, I, what I'm saying is not inconsistent with what he's saying. No, you're, you're right. It's not. Like, <laughs> he's, I 100% agree. Like, when Canadian content succeeds, it's good for Canada, but... We need to stop waiting for the international community to say this is good content. We have to look at our own content and say and evaluate it's it, whether or not it's good. Just decide. Yeah. Just decide what what's good. I think that he has a good point though that when things are international, if things become more international, there will be better investment and then oh, more better things and more funding for more better things. But but both things can be true at once. We can mm-hmm. decide what we think is good here and then also hope that it's internationally successful at the same time. Well, I think that it also could be that we decide we love it and everyone in Canada is watching it. Everyone in Canada is talking about it. That might generate some buzz to make it successful internationally too. Like I, I think that, that both generate things, some buzz. I think that both <laughs> things can be true. The way you said that was funny. Okay. But I realized when <laughs> I was working with Stephanie Gorin, who is a Canadian casting director, that there was so much content that was awesome. Because I started, like, because our part of our jobs would be, part of our job was to read scripts um, to come up with character breakdowns. Mm. And so I would be reading these scripts that I thought were amazing, telling, like, these really uniquely Canadian stories. And I would have never watched half of that stuff had I not read the script and been so into the story and seen how good it was, I would have never sought after that content. And then it started like helping me realize how good some of the stuff is and that we need to like give it a chance, you know? We just have this like preconceived notion of it being bad. In the lee of a picturesque ridge, lies a small, unpretentious winery. Come taste the difference good fruit can make in your wine. You'll remember the experience, and you'll remember the name, Herb Erflinger, Bert Herngeif. Irv Herblinger, Bing Livehanger, Livelinger, Bert So what do you feel like sets Schitt's Creek apart as a sitcom what makes it unique I think some of the character development is pretty special I think all four of the main characters are are really interesting really developed I think the four actors Eugene and Dan Levy Catherine O'Hara and Annie Murphy are all very talented and really made those people feel real to me what do you think yeah I agree I think the thing that Schitt's Creek is most often praised for is the LGBTQ storyline and uh, David's uh, pansexuality. So should we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So David identifies as pansexual. I don't know if we if he does explicitly. I believe it's it's a pretty it's an inference that you can draw. So this is a spoiler, but at uh, I think it's in the first season, David and his best friend Stevie sleep together 
And the next day she says, Just to be clear, um, I'm a red wine drinker. That's fine. Okay, cool. But, uh, I only drink red wine. Okay. And up until last night, I was under the impression that you too only drank red wine. I do drink red wine, but I also drink white wine. But I think what, what has made people draw the inference of pansexuality, um, other than, I think Dan Levy has also confirmed that, that his character David is pansexual in interviews now that I think about it, but the, the metaphor is just beautiful. Um, David says, I like the wine and not the label. Does that make sense? Yes. That's, I think, really unique to TV. I don't I don't know of any other, I think there's a couple I read about, but I've never seen in a show that I've watched a pansexual character. I think that's pretty unique. I also think that the love story between David and Patrick is one of my favorite love stories I've ever seen on TV. Uh, I think it's really beautiful. I know Dan has talked about the way that it was written purposely that queerness is not a problem for either of the characters. Like it's, there's, the problems that they encounter as a couple um, don't are purposely homophobia is purposely not part of it, which I think is is really interesting, and that that the queerness of the couple is not like a feature of their personality, which I think is which is different. Like in a lot of shows like that, there's a really there's a popular storyline of like um, this kid comes out, his parents are not supportive, but that that just doesn't happen in this show. Like homophobia is not a part of um, this love story and I think it's it's really beautiful <laughs> I also heard it was actually Roland or the actor who plays Roland said it's also interesting when you consider that it's set in a really small town which stereotypically tends to be less accepting and the fact that it's also never an issue with anyone in the town is quite quite telling and I think amazing. I think Catherine O'Hara described it as um, like a little utopia that that Dan yeah. wanted to live in which I think is kind of beautiful and yeah. sad. <laughs> well there's an amazing quote from the Huffington Post that I read um, you know because traditionally and typically a lot of LGBTQ storylines ended in tragedy or oh yeah had something terrible happen to one of the partners or both of the partners and so uh, this is a quote from the huffington post where calgary mom angie patterson said we already know what a homo homophobic family looks like it's time to see what an affirming family does mm -hmm. and i thought that that was really true it's just really nice to see this this relationship that really just is a love story. There's no, yeah. there's no, you know, tragic obstacle. That's, that's so true. And I wasn't thinking about that, but that's, um, it's so, it's so common in queer storylines where something really bad has to happen to um, the queer characters or uh, like they die um, in some queer stories I, mean, I should say that a lot of those stories are not written by queer people and that's sometimes what happens when straight people try to tell these stories but it, I think it's really telling that in this story the like effective climax of all six seasons is spoiler David and Patrick's wedding mm -hmm. and I think just to circle around that what I was saying before about the person who's the writer bringing a unique perspective and obviously yeah Dan Levy um obviously is a queer person 
writing a queer story. And so it, in my opinion, necessarily reflects his perspective in a way that's unique, like you say, and not that a, a, a straight screenwriter wouldn't necessarily be able to write in the same way. Anything else on that? No, I, I think that's pretty much it. That that seems to be the, the thing that's impacted viewers the most and caused the impotence for most fan letters. That's what seems to be. That's why I felt like we had to talk about this, just because of how much, I mean, the cast has, we don't, has said, I, mean, I think Dan Levy certainly was very conscious in, in, in writing this, like, queer storyline yeah. for queer kids and, like it, it's not an accident that this happened. Like I think that it's a testament to him that this was a deliberate effort, which has been received. It's a testament to his talent that it hasn't received in this way. And I know I've seen, I've heard lots of cast members say that like the kinds of letters that, that they get about, um, especially from queer kids, is is pretty inspiring and, and cool. And I remember um, when they were doing the four of them, the four family members, when they were doing press at the beginning of. Uh, season six airing that was that was one of the things that Dan Levy said that he wanted um, that he really pushed for this particular billboard that was up I believe in Dundas Square which is like I guess the Times Square of Toronto for those of you and, who don't know. I know there's a big one on Sunset Boulevard too. too. Yeah and <laughs> and this billboard was um, David and Patrick kissing and yeah, that was a, something that also meant a lot to a lot of people. And that was something specifically that Dan had pushed for. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it does go to show that, like, his own experience and the perspective that he's bringing to the production beyond just being a writer is is powerful. And, and you know, I, I think it's a strong case for more diversity <laughs> behind the scenes you know I love so I kind of said this before but I really love all four characters I do think that I think that we have to have a separate chat about Moira Rose as a character well if because I had to pick a favorite mine would be Moira yeah I do really love Alexis I and Annie Murphy I, I really love that character too but She's, like, been iconic since the first season. She's been iconic, like, (laughs) just, I don't know. Like, there's just, there's something about that character that I'm obsessed with. I also just, I really love how much of that character seems to really belong to Catherine O'Hara. Like, how much of that was really created by her. Like, my favorite parts of Moira come from Catherine. Like, the accents that she's, the (laughs) accent that she's created. A little bird chirped in my ear about your singing group. Oh, you mean the Jazzagals? Yes. At first I wondered aloud, why would a competitive vocal group not reach out to a trained chanteuse? Oh, we're just a group of gals. Exactly. This slightly, what, what we used to be called mid-Atlantic, which is so funny, mm-hmm. um, because also, who lives in the middle of the Atlantic? No one. <laughs> but it's also like very ambiguous, isn't it? It's like you can't. Yeah ever discern where she's from where it's from it's because it's from nowhere it's that Catherine Hepburn old Hollywood thing that like nobody on the outside of Hollywood speaks like that and Catherine and uh, Catherine has said that she's she's just fascinated by when people's accents don't match where they're from or don't come from anywhere also the the very strange words that she uses is very Mm -hmm. much so a Catherine O'Hara-ism like that is her creation supposedly um 
and she's an improviser right we should say like she comes from from improv comedy that she was walking around with like a, a book of weird words like on set that she would improvise into her lines which is so cool uh, like that's Catherine O'Hara the next quintessential thing is the wigs that's her that was her idea I think her costume is also largely the brainchild of Catherine as well right like when they were sitting down, the Levies and O'Hara sat down to envision Moira, it was Catherine that came loaded with these photos of the British socialite Daphne Guinness. And this is a quote from uh, Catherine O'Hara. She's all black and white. She's very avant-garde, really strong. A lot of a lot of it is like armor, which is so true. There's mm-hmm. so much like black and white and like steel. <laughs> um, the necklaces she wears, the heels. It's so great and strong and modern. It's so not your typical half-hour comedy wife. Hmm. And that's, par- that's point four of why Moira is amazing and why that belongs to Catherine O'Hara. She's just so not, like, the wives that we see in half-hour comedy. Like, I think mm-hmm. she's the strongest character on the show, which just is not the case in, in most half-hour comedy, right? Like, when you're talking about a sitcom about a family, like, so, so many of those characters are you know, clearly written by men, clearly kind of forgettable. Like, I, I really think she's the strongest character on the show. I think that that's, that's really unique. And going along with it, too, is that she's, like, the opposite of the domestic wife, right? Oh, There's yeah. that one episode where they're trying to make food. Fold in the cheese. And she, <laughs> like, she doesn't even know how to say the name of what she's making, right? She... <laughs> And then obviously her and and um, David get into a whole like fight about what it means to fold in the cheese. Uh-huh. <laughs> what does that mean? What does fold in the cheese mean? He folds it in. I I understand that, but how how do you fold it? Do you fold it in half like a piece of paper and drop it in the pot, or what do you do? David, I cannot show you everything. Okay, well can you show me one thing? And I think that that's like something that's distinct to her too is just being like the opposite of a domestic wife and something like like you say like we just don't really see yeah and i, I think, think you also see what's unique as well is that you also see johnny rose take on a little more what we would call like a hanky portrays a version of masculinity which is more empathetic like mm-hmm. what we would see a, a little bit more than mm-hmm. certainly than her what we would tend to see as what we would probably expect from the mother of the family it often comes from johnny i think Mm -hmm. i think we can just end by saying the journey of the show was pretty incredible you know it started season one with very modest ratings and obviously grew to be hugely successful by its sixth season which is obviously very uncommon that doesn't happen often with shows and yeah it's it's had an incredible rise to success I do love a show that doesn't just keep going on until it annoys me. Like they really did leave on a high. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't, I don't think there was very much that was gratuitous or unnecessary. Like I always tell you a, a show that I love so much. This is just one example. A lot of this happens to a lot of shows, but like when you get locked into such a long season two mm-hmm. or so many seasons, like crazy ex-girlfriend, it's just like, I just felt like that show was spinning its wheels for so long. I think that for a comedy, I think that the pacing of the story was was pretty on point the whole time, with with very few exceptions. That it didn't not, not much of it felt gratuitous. The story was always going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it had a really satisfying resolution for the fans. 
And I think it really ended on a high. I'm excited to see what Dan Levy's going to do next. I know he signed a deal with ABC. Hmm. Not in Canada. <laughs> I know. So let's, let's see what comes out of there. I also think I'm really excited to see what Annie Murphy, I know she signed on to another show, but I forget what it's called, but what Annie Murphy does with her career, because this is, was really a breakout role for her. And I just mm-hmm. think as much as Moira Rose is Catherine O'Hara, I mean, Alexis is almost as much Annie Murphy's creation. Like mm-hmm. she, she, she really, I don't know, created that character. Love. She literally wrote a little bit of Alexis. There's like a, isn't there like a dance, like remix of it too? Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, I think that's all. Well, thank you, Shits Creek. We love you. That's all he wrote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.